Good morning again. Well, most Americans love a good rags-to-riches story. And uh, maybe one of the best examples is the musical Annie. Uh, It's the story of a very likable young orphan girl who's living the hard-knock life in an orphanage that's run by an alcoholic named Miss Hannikin, who uh, not only dislikes children, but she mistreats them. And yet, in spite of this, Annie has a remarkable attitude, and she lives her life with a kind of infectious optimism. And uh, you might remember that she sings, When I'm stuck in a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, Diane? Oh, the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that there'll be sun. And finally, at the end of the musical, the sun comes streaming into her life, after all, in the form of a man named Daddy Warbucks, who is extravagantly wealthy and good-hearted, and he adopts Annie, and finally she comes to live in a real home, a a mansion, and she's got a family. And it's the ending that the audience wants, because everyone knows that it's the resolution that Annie deserves, And when we come to this chapter in the story of Joseph, it's easy to see Joseph as an Annie-like figure who is living a rags-to-riches story of his own. Uh, Joseph has, to this point, lived a hard-knock life himself. He's endured tremendous mistreatment, and yet he's done so with this incredible resilience and character. And now, finally, it appears that he has received what he deserves. He is has risen all the right way from the position of a slave to the prince of Egypt. And man, you look back over his story and you think, he has earned it. This feels like the happy ending that Joseph is worthy of. But while there is some joy and and resolution here, what I want us to see this morning is that this is not the happy ending to the Joseph story. At least not yet. What happens in this chapter is much more complicated and bittersweet than the typical Cinderella story that we're used to watching on television. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to close out the first half of the story of Joseph. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin this morning by reviewing the story so far Then I want to consider this chapter that Devin read for us this morning. Then I want to set the stage for what is yet to come in the second half of the story of Joseph, which we'll be covering uh, well into the end of uh, November. And then finally, what I want to do today is I want to make some uh, closing applicational comments because there is so much for our lives that we find here in this uh, chapter. Matt, would you mind bringing me my water? Thank you. Isn't Matt wonderful? Thanks, Matt. Sorry, I'm a little under the weather this morning. Right, thank you. Well, one of the the threads in the story of Joseph so far that ties everything together is uh, the idea of dreams. There are three sets of dreams that are experienced by people in this story, and As things unfold, uh, we discover that God is using these dreams to communicate to each recipient something about their future. 
And well, initially, nobody was clear on exactly what their dreams meant. When we come to this chapter, the meanings of all three sets of dreams are revealed and and they turn out to intersect with one another. So let's uh, review the dreams and we'll see if we can connect the dots. The first set of dreams, which we saw at the beginning of the story, sets the stage for everything that happens next. Uh, Joseph, a 17-year-old boy, was given two dreams by God for telling that he would rise in life to great prominence uh, above all of his 11 brothers and even his mother and father and become a figure who would outshine them all. Uh, His older brothers despised him for this claim, and and one very bad day in a far-off place, they attacked him, and they sold him into slavery, and he was dragged as a captive to the land of Egypt, where he was purchased as a household slave by a man named Potiphar. And things were looking up for Joseph for a little while, and his life seemed to improve until Potiphar's wife became, uh, began to make advances towards Joseph. And when he uh, declined her offer, she sexually assaulted him. But Joseph ran away, and when he did so, she claimed that he was the one who had assaulted her. And so Joseph was thrown in prison, where apart from the providence of God, he would likely have spent the rest of his life. And and this is the scene that sets the stage for the second set of dreams. Tom talked about this last week. One day the prison doors creaked open and two men were tossed in next to, to Joseph. Two very important men, in fact. Uh, at least they had used to be. One was the cupbearer and the other was the baker to the king of Egypt himself, Pharaoh. And one night in their cell, wouldn't you know it, God gave each of these guys a dream too. But for the life of them, they they couldn't figure out what their dreams meant. And it's at this point in the story that Joseph goes from being a receiver of dreams to being an interpreter of them. He shares with these men the meaning behind their dreams, that the cupbearer would be forgiven by Pharaoh and restored to his position while the baker would lose his life. And this interpretation turns out to be true. The baker, unfortunately, is executed, but the cupbearer is reinstated, and Joseph appeals to this guy to remember him and to try to help him, but it's of no use. The cupbearer forgets all about Joseph for two long, discouraging years until finally something happens to change everything. Another set of dreams. And this last time, the dreamer is none other than Pharaoh himself. And his dreams are very strange indeed. In his dream, uh, seven plump, beautiful cows come trotting out of the Nile River. And then seven ugly, thin cows crawl out of the river after them and, and stand next to them. And then, hideously, the thin cows Eat the fat ones. And Pharaoh wakes up with a start and and he goes into the kitchen and he grabs a glass of warm milk and, and goes back to bed and settles back to sleep. And just as he does that, another dream materializes. This time there are seven exquisitely plump and and full ears of grain that are growing on a stalk. And and then outsprout seven more ears. But these ones are horribly diseased. 
And then suddenly, again, the thin ears eat the fat ones, and, and Pharaoh wakes up, and, and now he really can't sleep. I mean, these two dreams have, have shaken him, and he senses in his bones that these things mean something very important. And, of course, he's right. But it doesn't matter because there is nobody, not even the best of his court magicians, who can interpret them. And it doesn't take long for word to get out about this. Pretty soon, Pharaoh's dreams are the talk of Egypt. And and people begin to wonder why Pharaoh, who was considered a god to the people, couldn't even make sense of his own dreams. Maybe he wasn't the all-knowing person that they thought he was. This was likely quite a scandal in Egypt. But when the news reached Pharaoh's cupbearer, suddenly he remembered Joseph, the man who years ago had interpreted his own dream. How could he have forgotten? And Joseph is sent for in prison and immediately brought and presented before the Pharaoh. And this is one of my favorite parts of the whole story of Joseph. Um, Joseph, for years, has suffered all kinds of of wrongdoing for at least a a decade uh, for sins that were committed against him. He he hadn't done the wrong himself, and he had become a slave and and a prisoner. And, And this moment when he stands before Pharaoh is his opportunity to set himself apart to to become someone very important, to make a name for himself and and to secure his own future as Joseph, the great interpreter of the dreams. But what does he do instead? He gives glory and credit and honor and recognition, not to himself, but to God. He he says, I I can't, I, I don't know what your dreams mean, Pharaoh, but God does. God can give you the answer. And so Pharaoh explains his dreams to Joseph after Joseph says this as an act of faith, believing that God would give him the answer to these dreams. And and Joseph tells him, God is showing you, Pharaoh, what he's about to do. He says, for seven years, there will be great abundance in the land of Egypt. But after those years, there will come a terrible, severe famine. And then, not only does Joseph just interpret the dream, but he goes on to offer Pharaoh some advice on how to resolve the problem. Joseph urges him that he's got to act immediately. He should appoint someone who is discerning and wise to gather up all the excess produce during the seven good years and save it up for the rainy days. Or in this case, the days that there would be no rain. And Pharaoh responds by saying, Well, that's a great idea, and I know just the guy for the job. Now, if you've been with us and you've been reading carefully through the story of Joseph, and if you've brought your heart to it and you've tried to put yourself in this man's shoes and reflected on how painful and unfair his life has been, And if you felt a connection to Joseph's story with your own story at points of painful things that you've experienced in in your life, then, then reading these few verses here, 39 through 45, will feel so satisfying to you. You should just enjoy this section. And as you read it, you should just let a smile grow on your face. 
Pharaoh says, Joseph, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. He says, only in regards to the throne will I be greater than you. See, I've put you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh gives him his signet ring and puts it on his hand. And he clothes him in garments of of fine linen. And he puts a gold chain around his neck. and, And he puts him in his second best chariot so that as he goes through the land, everyone has to kneel before him. He says, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, Joseph, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And then he gave him an Egyptian wife, a daughter named Asenath, and Joseph goes out over all the land of Egypt. And here's the point. The point right here is where all three sets of these dreams come together. Joseph is now a royal ruler, as his dreams foretold he would be. And God has used the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer to bring Joseph to the attention of the Pharaoh so that Pharaoh's own dreams could be interpreted and acted upon. Joseph has gone from rags to riches, and it just feels like right here everything is tied up really nicely in a bow. So let's end the scene and roll the credits, and we can all go home happy Don't forget to pick up your trash on the way out this morning. (laughs) But again, I really want us to see that it's not that simple. Because while there is much to be joyful about here, there are still threads of this story that are hanging loose. And right here in this chapter, we find some clues that this is not the end at all, but the beginning of a whole new chain of events. There are dark clouds on the horizon. And a very dangerous threat is approaching. Look at verses 53 through 58. It says, The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph said. There was famine in all the lands. Jump down to 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was very severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was so severe over all the earth. Again and again and again we are told The famine was spreading. The famine was creeping out of Egypt and expanding over all the land. And most importantly, what we're going to find is that soon it's going to reach all the way to Joseph's old family. To his brothers and and his fathers. And it is going to have an impact on them that is going to change the course of history. This famine will turn out to be one of the most significant and important events in all the Bible. And I want to explain to you why. And to understand this, we've got to recognize that when we read the story of Joseph, we're actually reading not one story, but two stories. 
Uh, There's the story itself, which we find in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. But then there's also a larger story that Joseph's story sits within. This is the overarching story of the whole Bible. And and theologians call this the Bible's meta-narrative. It's the story that weaves underneath the smaller story. You can think of it this way. In the first book of Lord of the Rings, Frodo and his friends get lost in a forest. And they run into somebody whose name was Tom Bombadil. And they have some different adventures together. But these adventures exist within a much wider framework of that story. Uh, An evil sorcerer whose name is Sauron is building an army to destroy the world. That's the big picture. And it lies underneath everything. It's called the meta-narrative. And that's what the Bible is like. It's a big story that lies underneath Joseph's little story. And the big story tells us that this world is not as it should be. That it is a world that has been spoiled by sin and that the people within it are alienated from God. And this big meta-narrative story answers for us the most important question in all the world. And that is, what on earth can be done to bring guilty sinners back into relationship with God? And the answer to that, the big story of the Bible tells us is that God will need to send his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die in order to make things right again. To die in order to rescue us from our sin because someone's got to pay that penalty. The overarching story of the Bible is Jesus And he's the point, and he is weaved through every single page. Everything hinges on him. Now, let's go back to Joseph for a minute. Okay, I I want you to to think about this. Earlier in the book of Genesis, right, just before we get to the story of Joseph, and and we've talked a little bit about this in in our series, Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, was promised that Jesus Christ would one day come from his line, that he would be born of his descendants. Now, it wasn't stated quite that clearly to Abraham, but we know today that that is what God meant. In fact, we know that Jesus would become the 42nd grandson in Abraham's line. Forty generations later, in his line would be born Jesus. Now, Try to stay with me on this. I hope this will, will, will be clear. Do you see how dangerous this famine is? It, it, this famine right here puts all of this in jeopardy. Because if Abraham's grandsons die out in the famine, then God's promise of Jesus dies out with them. If the children of Abraham don't live, then Jesus will never be born. And if Joseph is not able to help his family through this famine, then the meta-narrative of the Bible ends right here in Genesis chapter 42. Do you see how serious this famine is? 
This famine is a threat to everyone. If you're a believer here in Jesus Christ this morning, it was a threat to you. But there's another angle to this too. It's not just that Joseph must be capable of helping his family through this famine. He's got to also be willing. What if he chooses not to help? After all, these were the people who tried to have him killed. Why should he help them? He had it made now. Why not just count all of them dead and consider himself no longer a son of Abraham, but a son of Egypt instead? So what I'm getting at is that this famine is going to change everything. And Joseph is going to have to make a very difficult choice. Egypt or Abraham? And thank God what Joseph is going to do is he's going to choose Abraham. But we've got to ask ourselves, why? Why would he? Why not choose Egypt? He's got it so good there. Well, there are two clues that lie inside this chapter that give us some insight on this. And those two clues are embedded in the names that Joseph gives to his children. So I want you to take a look, if you have a Bible, at at verse 50. We're going to read 50 to 52. Before the year a famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of An, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice about this is something very significant. Okay, Joseph has been away from his home now, living in Egypt for at least 20 years at this point. Incredibly, he's become the number two ranking official in all of the land. And yet what he does here is something remarkable. He gives his sons Hebrew names. He identifies his children with his family of origin, the the same ones who hurt him and betrayed him and and caused him so much harm. Back in that day, the name that you would give to a child really meant something and often carried a very deep significance. So what does the name Manasseh mean? Well, it, it means to forget. And Joseph explains the meaning behind this name a little farther, saying, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Those days of trouble, Joseph says, God is allowing to put behind me. God is freeing him so that his heart is not filled with bitterness and resentment and, and regret. It, it was like Joseph stuck a flag in the ground through the naming of his son that said, I will forgive. And every time he called out Manasseh's name, it was a reminder to him to leave the past in the past. 
And oh, that God would give some of us that, that same grace to forget some of the wounds that we've experienced and that lie in, in our past as well. Well, the name that Joseph gave his second son was Ephraim, and Ephraim means fruitful. And, and Joseph elaborates on this in, in a kind of a shocking way. He, he says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, there's one word that stands out in all of that, and that's the word affliction. Someone who heard that, who was an Egyptian, could have come up and, and, and said to him, what are you talking about, the, the land of your affliction? You're number two in all of Egypt, buddy. You have every single luxury at your disposal. The entire nation bows down to you and, and obeys your command. What do you mean the land of your affliction? What an ungrateful and unpatriotic thing to say. But it says a lot about Joseph. It says a lot to us. Joseph had been, was living a new life. He he had a fresh start, and in it, he had everything that he desired. Can you see what a temptation it would have been for him to just turn his back on his roots and fully embrace the Egyptian culture? To to just kind of move on and enjoy his newfound wealth and power, and and not only that, but to abandon God too and, and just adopt the religion of his new wife, This daughter of a priestess, he he had every reason to justify doing so. And yet, through the naming of his sons, we see that he didn't do that. He knew that, that as prosperous as his life had become, that something was still wrong. That he was still Pharaoh's slave. And that even though, as a slave, he had to accept his new, initial, new Egyptian name that Pharaoh gave him and his new Egyptian wife, he would not accept that Egypt was his home. All the Egyptians in the country might bow down to him, but they would not be Joseph's people. Uh, last week, <clears throat> Tom talked about how Joseph overcame discouragement. In fact, the story up until this point is it's that. It's a man who's got to overcome discouragement in life. But what we find here and now is that Joseph is going to be tested not with hardship, but with prosperity. Joseph, all of a sudden, is is living the good life. He's won the lottery. Now, how is he going to handle that? You know, the Bible is is filled with examples of people who love God faithfully and wholeheartedly during times of of struggle and pain. But when their struggle ends, their faithfulness to God ends with it. Uh, David was the greatest king of Israel, and, and he was like this. He handled hardship and danger and sorrow with this incredible godliness and, and strength. But his faith seemed to collapse when his life was going well and, and when things were smooth. And his son Solomon was like this even more so. Solomon was deeply devoted to the Lord in the beginning of of his life, but his faith seemed to have totally shattered at the end of his life. 
underneath the weight of Solomon's incredible wealth and prosperity. Sometimes a blessing can be a greater temptation to us than a trial. Uh, I've heard people say things like this. I am so bummed out right now. Things have been so tight for me financially, and I needed a raise so bad. Prayed about it, thought about it, decided what I was going to say, went into my, my boss's office, described it perfectly, and when I asked for it, I didn't get it. And I think the devil must really be attacking me. Now, first of all, I'm not convinced that the devil was necessarily involved in this. But if he was, he may have been on the side of wanting the person to get the race. He might have been attacking that way. Because the devil wants us to be satisfied with the world, not disappointed in it. The devil doesn't want us to struggle. Why would he want us to struggle? If life is smooth, then we've got no need for God because everything that we long for and yearn for and hope for is right there in front of our noses. Jesus said that it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are terrifying words. And what he means is that a a rich person has everything that they want. They have no need for God. Their, Their focus can just be on the present enjoyment of everything that they have around them in the world. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, instead, blessed are those who are dissatisfied with life. Blessed are those who deep down in their soul, know that this is not how the world should be, that this is not the place that they belong, and that this is not the life that they were meant for. Joseph had it all in Egypt, but he knew that he didn't belong. I think he is an example of a man who is prosperous, but at the same time, Poor in spirit. In one sense, externally, this guy is thriving. But we find here that he's also daily fighting to forget those things that have been done to him and against him. And he's daily fighting not to make Egypt his home. And he's daily fighting to keep the Lord alone as his God. And it is these struggles and his striving not to give in to them that keep him grounded. And I believe are going to prepare him literally to save the world when that time comes. You know, we so often pray that God would relieve us from the burdens of our problems, uh, to take away those things that we daily fight against. And it's okay to pray that way. The Bible says we should pray that way. It's good to pray that way. But as counterintuitive as it sounds, we should also thank God for our problems. Because it is our struggles in life that keep us poor in spirit that drive us back to God. 
that humble us and impoverish us and make us feel needy and broken inside. And they help us to recognize that when we are weak and we lift up our hearts to the Lord, then and only then we are strong. So no matter how prosperous you might be in your job or in your social circles or on your bank statements, God's love for you is sometimes evidenced. In fact, it's sometimes made crystal clear by his willingness to allow thistles and thorns to pierce into the skin of your life. And may these problems drive you daily to the throne of grace. And may God give you the strength and the faith to endure them. For when you and I are poor in spirit, Jesus tells us we are blessed. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you that you are so big and so great, even great enough to use our own problems for us and not against us. Help us, Father, even today with the disappointments and difficulties and anger and and hurts that we feel. Help them to make us poor in spirit. Help them to drive us to you, to seek you, to need you, to be dependent upon you, to need rescue from these things. We thank you that that Jesus said that the poor in spirit are not only blessed, but that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that they have a home where everything is right, where you will be seen not by faith but by sight. And we pray that you would give us the courage and the faith and the strength to live in that way, just as I believe you gave Joseph that strength. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.